Good day, all you uh, dear listeners of uh, Birkegaard, the writings of Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, today, September 7th, uh, the fall starting to stick its its paw, its paw through the door a little bit like a cat would. It's starting to starting to creep in a little bit. I look forward to the uh, the fall. Today we're taking on chapter four of uh, Kierkegaard's book, uh, Purity of Heart is the Will One Thing. We've done several chapters and intros and prefaces so far, and I won't recount that because we're getting to the point if I do that, the uh, the review will use up a huge chunk of the time. So if you want to know the previous chapters and the preface and the introduction, the whole nine yards, go back and listen to the previous podcast. Try to do things in order here. Try to stick to the plan and try to take on the book in a logical fashion. Proceed through it page by page. Uh, So today's a very, very challenging chapter. I had mentioned that either one or two podcasts ago as we were getting close to finishing up chapter three. The chapter four proved to be a very challenging uh, chapter to read. And Soren is not one not to challenge his his readership his his people that like his readings he doesn't cut them any breaks he uh he is very focused on the intent of communicating his message uh, drinking peruvian coffee today so barriers to willing one thing the reward disease the reward disease i don't think it's always wrong i mean it's very human nature and i'm not going to try to demonize this too much that we uh we operate to some degree uh, by rewards and i don't think it's wrong wrong i think it has potential for wrong and i think soren does a masterful job at extricating the issue and examining it putting it underneath the microscope and looking at it uh so we're gonna get into a chapter four barriers to will one thing the reward disease a thousand minds but i want to conclude kind of um uh, excuse me, barriers to willing one thing, the reward disease. I want to, uh, that's chapter four, but I want to just finish up a little bit with A Thousand Minds, which was the last podcast. I think there was a couple things out of the uh, biography that was super helpful. So I'm going to go read those things before I move forward into chapter four. So Soren is still uncertain about becoming a writer. So this is what Claire Carlisle writes in the biography, Philosopher of the Heart. The Restless Life of Soren Kierkegaard, yet he remained unsure of his vocation and ambivalent about being an author. It seemed virtually impossible to publish his works without being assailed by unending worries about how they would be received. His pride bristled at these anxieties over esteemed success status uh, to which he longed to be indifferent. If only he could confide uh, confine his profound sensitivity to profound things. So this is a good transition bridge between being a thousand-minded and the reward disease. Soren wants to be at the point where he feels like he's in God's will with being a writer, and he's not, you know, kind of backwards engineering it from, well, let's find out what the crowd wants to hear and then write for that. He wants to write authentically and truthfully and beautifully, and let the consequences come as they may, whether he gets acclaim or not, worldly acclaim or worldly success or not. Uh, so uh, Claire, Carlisle, Claire Carlisle, uh continues here, God's wisdom is secret and hidden. 
it's drawing his this contrast between divine wisdom and the false wisdom of the world that the apostle paul argued that serving god and pursuing worldly things including esteem success status are two diverging paths through life and either or which of course is the name of one of soren's other books so he doesn't want to be either or or double-minded or thousand-minded as the case may be uh, so that's a good point. Soren's dealing with that, and we all do. Like with this podcast, I want it to be successful. Nobody wants to put something out there and have it suck or do a good job with it and have people criticize it. That would be bothersome. I am thankful that I get more compliments than insults or criticism. And criticism's not always wrong. I'm not, I'm not a sociopath. I understand that criticism sometimes is necessary. We should all be open to be critiqued to a degree. We shouldn't, we shouldn't desire it. That's not healthy, I don't think. Go out of our way to get bashed. Yeah. So, uh, a thousand minds, and then uh, barriers to willing one thing, the reward disease. All these, all these thousands, a thousand-mindedness. Anxiety arises within a person when he becomes conscious of his freedom. And that's why a... Uh, a man called Haman called anxiety a holy hypochondria. It is a spiritual awareness unknown to animals, which are merely physical creatures. But human beings are not angels either. We live in the world anchored by gravity, feet on the ground, rooted in actuality, our mortal bodies, our circumstances, the facts of our lives. And yet we breathe the air of possibility. And the force of gravity is seldom so strong that we cannot lift a foot uh, into the air and take a step one way or another. Uh, we all long to claim our freedom, and when actuality becomes a swamp, we grasp desperately at, uh, desperately for air. Yet the same freedom, with its dizzying proliferation of possibilities, dizzying proliferation of possibilities. That's uh, Sally sold seashells at this seashore type of thing. It's dizzying proliferation of possibilities. All you need is dizzying to be a P. The perverse proliferation of possibilities fills us with anxiety the moment we experience it. An open future, like the nothingness of death, an unknown abyss. Uh, glancing down, afraid of falling, we anxiously grasp and cling onto anything solid we can find. Possessions, money, food, drink, other people. In an effort to steady ourselves, Thus we live, uh, clutching at things in the world, whether or not it is for our good or theirs. But we can learn to be anxious only by letting go and finding out what happens when we fall. This is a quote from Soren. This is an adventure that every human being must go through to learn to be anxious so that he may not perish either by never having been in anxiety or by succumbing in anxiety for whoever has learned to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate. So some of that was uh, Claire Carlisle's writings and some of that was Soren, of course. Uh, so he talks about anxiously grasping and clinging on to anything solid we can find, possessions, uh, money, food, drink, other people. So a lot of times uh, when we're um, a thousand-minded and to make the transition to uh, the reward disease, we're looking to grasp onto the rewards as some kind of tangible proof that we are worth something that we're meaningful 
So what happens when that's not offered? Does that mean that we're a failure? Does that mean that God is not at work? Oh, contraire. It might mean specifically the opposite, that we're denied all those worldly uh, outward manifestations of success, but we're still in the will of God. Uh, God is calling us to do that. So we always have to remember that things in the world are are temporary. We've said that a lot. I've said that a lot, so I'm not going to beat that to... Uh, death right now, but I just want to reiterate that because we need to be reminded uh, of those things for sure. Okay, so chapter 4, barriers to willing one thing, the reward disease. So Soren here, if it uh, be possible for a man really in truth to will one thing, then he must will the good and truth. A, if it be possible for a man to will the good and truth, then he must submit at one with himself. Then he must be at one with himself and willing to renounce all double-mindedness, or a thousand-mindedness, as we talked about. Therefore, if it be possible for a man to will one thing, then he must will the good, for only the good is one. Uh, thus, if it becomes a fact that he wills one thing, he must will the good and truth. Uh, so that's the introduction to chapter 4, The Reward Disease. Uh, we're going to continue on with uh, Soren here. Here's Confession, the Office of Confession. Here's Soren confessing to God and to his readers. Here, too, the speaker has his own life, his own frailties, his own share of doubleness of mind. Oh, that the talk might not seem to wish to judge or accuse others. For to wish to judge others instead of oneself would also be double-mindedness. Oh, that the talk might not seem to press demands that are binding upon others, but that exempt the speaker. Uh, again, uh, Soren sees himself more as a speaker than a writer in this way, because he wants his, his readers to read out loud. Uh, but that exempt the speaker as if, as if he only... Um, as if he only the task of talking. Let me see if I can try that again. For to wish to judge others instead of oneself would also be double-mindedness. Oh, that the talk might not seem to press demands that are binding upon others, but that exempt the speaker as if he had only the task of talking. For this too is double-mindedness, just as it is hidden pride to wish to offer comfort to others, but to be uh, willing to let, but not be willing to let oneself be comforted. Let me do that again. For this, too, is double-mindedness, just as it is hidden pride to wish to offer comfort to others, but not to be willing to let oneself be comforted. Uh, so Soren comes to the office of confession. He uh, He's pretty clear that he's writing through himself, that he's not he's not just issuing jury meds towards other people or polemical. Uh, he's putting himself in the line of fire here to a degree. To a large degree, and I don't think he's just being kind of kind to do that, or appropriate, or diplomatic. I think he means it. He uh, he talks about how he himself needs to um, admit his frailties. So Soren continues, "Oh, that one might wound no one except for his healing. That the talk might embitter no one, and yet be the truth. That the talk, along with truth, might be." sufficiently penetrating to reveal that which is hidden. 
Okay, so he makes the following uh, hypothesis or thesis, and it has a Roman numeral one here. So, in the first place, a statement must be made, which is easy to grasp, that the man who desires the good for the sake of the reward does not will one thing, but is double-minded. The good is one thing, uh, the reward is another that may be present and may be absent for the time being, or may be absent for the time being, or until the very last. There we go. Gets into kind of talking about that the good is ennobling and the sanctifying, and, and sanctifying the sanctifying, the reward is the, is the tempting. Um, we're talking about here is the world's reward. And the, reading the uh, biography has been super, super helpful. Um, because it gives a lot of context to Soren's writings. Um, one could deduce by the writings that Soren is in anguish and has anxiety. He's being driven by great forces, like great winds or great, a great storm. Nobody writes like Soren without having that tumult going on. Uh, tumult creates uh, friction, it creates uh, conflict, it creates dynamic uh, conditions, and Soren is clearly writing from a position of someone who has his hand on the mast and the storm is trying to find his way through. He, uh, he makes a good point. Oh, he uses the example of a girl. The question, question is not difficult. If a man loves a girl for the sake of her money, who will call him a lover? So Soren is trying to make the, uh, the connection or the example or the uh, parallel between a man saying he loves a woman but loving her for her money. But that's not really love. And if we are focused on the reward uh, disease for our actions, then we're no better than the man who loves a woman for her money. And he doesn't love the woman. He loves the money that the woman has, the more correct way of saying it. Um, and you can remember that when Soren is in his battles with the Corsair, the literary uh, satirical magazine in Copenhagen, uh, he, is, uh, he is actively <clears throat> confronting uh, the Corsair because he felt like their praise was fatuous, of his writings was fatuous and simple-minded and didn't really get the point of what he was saying. Like, Soren doesn't want to be praised falsely. He wants people to really grapple with what he's writing. And he felt like um, he felt like uh, the Corsair was being simple, simplistic and uh, trendy just by praising his books in a shallow sense. And uh, he writes about <laughs> concluding unscientific postscripts during that time. Uh, he he uh, he wrote, "It is really strange that a man does not have control of the book he buys and pays for it with us." Three Rix dollars and 64 shillings. Now, this is a review of his book. So uh, this is somebody who wrote a review of his book. It's really strange that a man does not have control of the book he buys and pays with for three Rix dollars and 64 shillings. If uh, Mag Magister uh, Kierkegaard has a book printed for private circulation among his friends and gives it away, then he can request, first of all, do... You acknowledge this book to be perfect, so pure and sensitive that the mere breath of human judgment defiles it. But when someone has honestly and uprightly paid his three rix dollars and 64 shillings and then is told, read it as you read the Bible. If you do not understand it, then read it over again. If you do not understand it, 
the second time, you may just well as blow your brains out. Then a strange feeling comes over him. There is a moment when his mind is confused, and it seems to him that Nicholas Copernicus was a fool when he insisted that the earth revolves around the sun. On the contrary, the heavens, the sun, the planets, the earth, Europe, and Copenhagen itself revolve around Soren Kierkegaard, who stands silent in the middle and does not once uh, take off his hat in recognition of the honor shown to him. So Soren was, uh, had rebuffed um, this uh, review uh, from the Corsair and uh, it kind of ticked off the, uh, the person who wrote the review in the Corsair. And there's some illustrations in this book that mocked Soren for his shorter leg. And this is out of the biography, page 194. The books are not, I mean, the illustrations in the Corsair are not horrible, horrible uh, by today's standards. But they are insulting for sure. Uh, Soren said the next time he encountered the Corsair's editor during his daily walk, he did not greet him, but met his eyes with a look that was intense and very bitter. Goldschmidt was the editor, suppressed his urge to laugh in the bitterness of the glance of that glance, just as Kierkegaard's entire personal appearance and, man, and manner, just as in Kierkegaard's entire personal appearance and manner, there was something that verged on the comic. Yet suddenly amusement gave way to loftiness, the ideality, uh, the ideality that was, that were also present in his personality. Uh, for Goldschmidt saw something in that intense, wild glance that drew the curtain, as it were, away from the higher right that Kierkegaard had asserted earlier, and that I had not been able, or rather unwilling, to understand, though I did suspect it. It accused and depressed me. So Soren shot back a look at the editor of the Corsair, Goldschmidt, and Goldschmidt initially um, dismissed it, but then the more he thought about it, the more it penetrated his soul. Um, that very day Goldschmidt decided to quit the Corsair. He sold the paper a few months later, then traveled to the continent for a year. Then when, when he came back, he founded North and South, a political and literary journal, which Moeller jibed, uh, was respectable enough to be quoted by Bishop Meinster. Moeller himself left Denmark at the end of 1847, did not return. So Moeller was the one that wrote that review of uh, Soren's writings and was very insulting. And uh, Soren uh, retaliated and responded to that. So one thing that uh, I want to kind of get into as we, as we finish up here today uh, is the art of forgetting. It was listed as kind of a, uh, as a citation inside of... Um, Purity of heart is the well one thing on page 71. That's really fascinating because sometimes Soren, uh, Soren uh, puts out uh, quotes inside of his writing that embed uh, references to either the Bible or to ancient Greek philosophy or some other historical figure that um, might be difficult for us to understand because uh, we're not as familiar with those classic uh, thinkers and writers. So, uh, yes, what was once said of memory is applicable to that sort of knowledge, namely that one might prefer to learn the art of forgetting. And that comes from a, a Greek philosopher named Themistocles. I don't have the pronunciation quite correct. Uh, T-H-I-M-S-T-O-C-L-E-S. He was a, a Greek uh, politician before Alexander the Great, actually. Uh, knew Alexander's father, Philip of Macedon. 
and was apparently the uh, the the thinker, philosopher, and the military general who encouraged the Greeks to develop a stronger navy, which was crucial in defeating in defeating Sparta. But um, what Themistocles prayed for wanted, I don't know if praying is the right word, they did pray to like the oracles or ask the oracles for advice and stuff, or they did have gods like Zeus and etc. Uh, but what Themistocles wanted was the art of forgetting. So Soren cites this in, its, in his chapter, chapter 4, about the reward disease, that a really key component of... Um, doing God's will and willing one thing is to forget and not to have remembrance of um, the things we've done in the sense of holding on to them for the reward that we're going to get because that can lead to disappointment. Um, Themoscles wanted to not remember something. A teacher had come up to Themoscles and said, hey, I can teach you to remember everything. And Themoscles wanted to know the uh, contrary skill, which is uh, that one might learn to uh, the art of forgetting. So I think Soren is saying when we do a good act or we do a good thing, to not be attached to the reward. You do it because it's good. You do it because it's the right thing. And the reward might come, but don't count on it. Don't expect it. Don't anticipate it. Don't wager on it. And again, it's, it seems like Soren's trying to ask human beings to be something that we're not. We are cause and effect. We plant seeds in the ground. We want to plant. We put the gas in the car. We don't want the car to run. Uh, we put money in the bank. We want to have enough money to pay our bills. So I think Soren's asking for something to be a little bit too narrow in one way, but I get his point, which is if somebody does a good act, and then they're rebuffed or betrayed in that good act. Somebody doesn't appreciate it or somebody criticizes them for it. It's like a hand getting bit by a dog. You reach out to give a dog a pet or a, you know, a bone or a treat, and the dog snaps your hand. We, you know, we're going to be reluctant to, to treat that dog in any sense in a positive way in the future because we're fearful. Uh, so Soren wants us to hand things freely to the world and the will of God and to let the results depend on God. Let God provide the, the, the harvest or the yield. And uh, I think it's a good word because, you know, serving as a school counselor as we finish up here, uh, a lot of things in, in high schools and schools in general come through the school counselor office. It looks like a very non-important position. I've had a lot of people ask me, like, well, what do you do all day? Like, what did you do all day? What did you do all, all, your, all your 30 years of working? And, you know, schedules and working with kids with mental health issues and just kids that needed to talk and need to resolve conflict between teachers and students and parents and kids and kids and the whole nine yards. It's a, it's a real maelstrom. And a lot happens behind closed doors. Uh, but you're not going to get a lot of praise for it. It's a good job for somebody that wants to do good but not be up in the spotlight uh, because uh, that's just the nature of the job. It has to be confidential. You can't parade your successes in front of uh, various people because it, uh, it kind of uh, shouldn't be that way. It's not something that should be public. So a lot of the good that we do is behind closed doors and, and, and things like that or in the guidance office, uh, but never question that we do all this good, that we do all this thing that help kids have more successful lives. Uh, 
And it is easy to get resentful in that position or other positions where you're doing a lot of good but not getting a lot of reward overtly or praise or anything like that. Uh, it's it's easy to get cynical. It's easy to get jaded. But then it would you know sort of question whether we did it for the right reasons. If we're expecting the reward, well, maybe we didn't want to do it for the right reasons to start with because we wanted to be patted on the back or we wanted to get an attaboy or we wanted to be, uh, you know, counselor of the year or whatever. Uh, so I think Themistocles makes a good point that one might prefer to learn the art of forgetting. And uh, that's good. Um, and it doesn't mean that God's not going to reward us, but he's going to reward us in eternity. I mean, first of all, he rewards us in his life with a clear conscience. And I could say in, in my years of working with kids for 34 years actively, that I always wanted what was best for the kids. Now, the kids could disagree and the parents could disagree that what, what I wanted for the kid wasn't the correct thing. That's, that's just me being honest there. Uh, but I could tell you my intent was always to do what I felt was best for the child. I never really had a situation where I was wanted to hurt a child or wanted a child to be harmed because of their behavior. I wanted them to, uh, you know, to be successful. I wanted them to have a chance, a fighting chance, because our, our school didn't have all the resources of other schools. We had to make the most of what we had. We couldn't afford to leave anything on the table. So I wanted, I wanted the students of my school to be competitive against the kind of kids I went to high school with, the kids that had all the privileges in the world, the, the money, the power, the prestige, the privilege. And I wanted kids from this uh, small suburban rural school and it used to be much more rural than it is now to have a fighting chance when they came face to face with kids that had all the privilege and all the power and all the possessions and all the money and it's kind of uh you know the board is loaded uh, in their direction it's a monopoly board where half the pieces have already been spoken for and the remaining pieces aren't the prime pieces they're like marvin gardens or whatever but i want my students to roll the dice well i wanted them to play wisely and have a chance to be competitive and face to face uh, competition with other with other students from other areas and other schools but towards the end of my career I you know I started I started to feel that fading sometimes I started to feel burned out I think COVID uh, contributed and a specific situation uh, did contribute to me not having that benevolence and I'm not going to get into that specific situation but it was very discouraging because people questioned my motives about something and it wasn't a question of you being inappropriate sexually or anything like that. But they made assumptions about me that were incorrect, and I knew they were incorrect, and third parties told me they were incorrect. Uh, and I just got weary of defending what I thought was the right thing, and I felt like I was no longer supported. So I'll leave it at that. But um, for most of my career, I was supported by my, my supervisors and fellow staff. And even towards the end, I had a lot of support regardless. Uh, but it did call into question, you know, why do you do what you do? You do it for the right reasons. You sleep well at night. Your conscience is clear. Um, you've done decent enough financially. You've been taken care of, and that's a good thing. Uh, so uh, in the end, uh, it was a good job for somebody like me that likes to do good but doesn't always need a pat on the back, but I certainly do need some. Uh, so we're going to leave it at that today, leave it there. Hopefully I didn't get into too much detail about specifics in, in, in uh, my occupational life, but I wanted to mention something, delve into it a little bit because it definitely made sense. Um, but I'm thankful that I had the opportunity to help kids all those years. So God does promise reward, but it's uh, the kind of a tangible intangibles like peace, uh, peace of mind, peace of conscience, uh, peace of relations with others, that even if there's conflict, one's not actively putting gasoline on the fire. 
uh, looking to use in a fire extinguisher. Like, I'm pretty diplomatic usually. I'm a straight talker, but I don't go out of my way just to offend people. I don't think I'm all that. Uh, I have a strong ego, uh, but I can say honestly, I think I served well for my uh, my years, and it was a good a good thing to do, and I'm thankful for it. So again, thank you for your uh, listenership. Uh, if you like what I uh, what I talk about, go and buy my book either on Lulu L U L U. Uh, that's the uh, publishing firm that published my book uh, on the edge, transitioning imaginatively to college. Or buy it on uh, Amazon with uh, Kindle. Looks like the price has come down for the hard copy on Amazon too. Uh, so Lulu.com uh, or Amazon. That's a way that you can support uh, me in this podcast is buy my book. Uh, I will strive to keep this podcast completely ad-free. I just don't want to get in a situation where I'm weighing the moral, ethical nature of sp- sponsorship. Uh, I hear some weird things in other podcasts sometimes, things I'd be personally uncomfortable with, and I don't know what control I would have over that. Um, it's not wrong to be paid for this, but I want to keep it free of outside interference and outside manipulation, somebody pulling the strings. So I think my goal is to keep Birkegaard, the writings of Soren Kierkegaard, commercial free. But if there's other things that I do and you want to support those things, uh, it would be nice to have a little bit more income. I'm presently still resolving my parasitic leak in my car, trying to resolve it. And I may need to buy a new car, and that's going to probably be $30,000 at least. And it doesn't hurt to have a few more a few more Benjamins in the bank when you go to buy something like that. So we're going to leave it there today. Buy the book if you want to support the podcast. Also, write a review on your podcast platform. Uh it's nice to hear those private, uh, those private uh, accommodations and, uh, you know, good words. Uh, yeah, better even so, if you feel comfortable doing so, put that on a review somewhere because your reviews matter. People will take this thing seriously. And if you have some uh, things you want me to improve upon, first reach out privately and uh, we'll address those. And if I don't address them privately, uh, feel free to make them public. So have a fantastic uh, week. We will see you next week.